Welcome to the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC Fight Night 201, Walker versus Hill, or UFC Vegas 48. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com. With me, as always, is Keith Schillen, the executive producer of the Sherdog Radio Network. Keith, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing good, man. We uh, This is officially the... <laughs> We have guys on the roster. Let's get a fights card <laughs> because the you know from the co-main event all the way to the first fight, there's not much difference. But uh, you know what? Bad fights are still better than any other sport. So uh, how you doing, man? I'm I'm doing fine, man. I mean, we're both doing better than this card is. But like you say, you know, uh, it's it's like pizza. When it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it's still pretty good. Still pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we are down to, I believe it is 11 fights on this card right now. And, you know, again, the 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 main event between Johnny Walker and Jamal Hill sounds like a fun fight. Sure. Two huge lanky dudes with tons of power that on certain cards wouldn't even be a main card fight. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you I mean, get last, one of your real... Last, you know, UFC 271, I mean... Maybe on you know the main card might may not have been if it was for just you know one event earlier. Yeah, so uh, that's that's the difference a week makes because they are now with the loss of the Rafael dos Anjos Rafael Faziv uh, lightweight fight. These two are now the main event, and dos Anjos versus Faziv uh, due to Faziv's visa issues has been pushed to UFC 272 in March, where it will be the co-main event of that card. You know what they should but, have done with. They should have just rebooked Matt Snell and Alex Perez for this card uh, <laughs> for the fifth time. For the fifth time. <laughs> and it absolutely would have been worthy of headlining this card. I mean, <laughs> it's until, too... until it got canceled and we ended up with this fight anyways. Again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm here on the ground covering UFC 271 for sure, dog. And, you know, as Keith alluded to, uh, you know, we lost the Alex Perez versus Matt Snell fight for the fourth time. Uh, you know, today at the weigh-ins, uh, in addition to uh, William Knight setting a, a a UFC record, you know, showing out for for New England uh, with the <laughs> now officially the worst weight miss in UFC history, weighing in at uh, two eighteen for a uh, for a light heavyweight fight. Yeah, who who would have thought the five foot three light heavyweight would have made weight? <laughs> in fairness, he did he did take the fight uh, on short notice, but. Uh, you get a little grace if you miss by one or two pounds on short notice. Not like, not like twin infant babies. Like that's what. Yeah. Not, not one infant, but like two infants. Yes. Or I mean, or you know, if you're watching this, you probably know the way I describe William Knight. What's one more bowling ball, really, when you get down to it? Ah, <laughs> uh, so, I the, uh, cafeteria pizza card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, this is this is the cafeteria pizza card. Uh, shall we dive right into this one? Yeah, let's do it. First up at UFC Vegas 48 is a strawweight matchup between Diana Belbitsa and Gloria De Paula. Uh, Belbitsa, the 25-year-old Romanian, is 14 and six overall. She is one and two in the UFC, and uh, she did win her last outing. It was a unanimous decision over Hannah Goldie that might well have saved her job because she did debut in the UFC off of back-to-back -back losses to Molly McCann, uh, though that one was at flyweight, and Liana Jojua. Uh, that last fight against Goldie was all the way back in July of 2021, so it has been about an eight-month layoff for the Romanian. 
She'll be taking on DePaula. The 26-year-old Brazilian is 5-4 and four overall. She is 0-2 since joining the UFC out of Dana White's Contender Series in 2020. She dropped a unanimous decision to Jin Yu Fry in her debut at uh, UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad last March. Came back in July at UFC on ESPN Hall versus Strickland and got knocked out, got head kicked by Cheyenne at the time, Bays. Uh, so she is still looking for her first win in the UFC. Nothing's certain in this uncertain era uh, for the UFC, but there is good possibility this will be her last chance to get it, at least on this go around. Uh, the odds do not favor her to get it done. Belbitza is the slight favorite, minus 125. DePaula, plus 105. Keith, uh, Two women really still trying to prove they belong here. Who gets it done and how? Yeah, that's a tough one to pick right out the uh, out the gate because, you know, they're two women right at the very cusp of being cut. I mean, the loser of this fight, we're probably putting on our cut list. So uh, DePaulo is a long and lengthy striker. I'd say she's a plus athlete. Uh, good movement, light on her feet. Uh, good volume, you know, pretty high volume striker, fast hands. I like that about her. Uh, she does throw like long strikes from the outside, busy jab, uh, straight punches down the pipe. She has a really accurate right hand. She tends to attack in blitzes with combos. I would say plus power. She does she does a lot of pillaring, which I you know I don't like, but uh, she has nice kicks. I like her step in knees, uh, strong plum clinch. Knees and elbows inside close. Does a lot of dirty boxing uh, with, uh, you know, pull back of the head, Brandy Couture style. Uh, sneaky high kick. Uh, she can sneak in a takedown, and her hop control is pretty solid. But her defensive wrestling is pretty bad. I mean, she kept on going for, like, head attacks against uh, Polina Macias, which which I don't like. Uh, if she gets on top, hard ground and pound. But weak defensive wrestling uh I, I always I mention this every time we talk about her. Like I was watching film for her, uh, she got headlocked on the regional scene. Like uh, you see her against Jin Yu Fry, who's extremely undersized. You know, really Jin Yu Fry is an atom weight. Uh, she struggled to stop takedowns from Jin Yu Fry. Struggled to get back up from against Jin Yu Fry, uh, and she actually had her back taken by Jin Yu Fry. So she's some. Well, she's a really, I would say, plus athlete and. Uh, a good striker. She's got a major hole in her uh, defensive grappling. Now, Belitza, you mentioned only 25 years old. She's a great striker. She's a former K1 kickboxing champion, also high output, really tight, everything inside, throws straight punches down the pipe, really good at mixing up her angles when she's on the offense, a lot of sidestepping on her attacks, cutting angles on the defense, a lot of L-stepping, so she's kind of like sidestepping her, the attacks to leave her open for, for counters. Chris Jab, I like that she adds a lot of kicks into her combination. She'll end a combination with a calf kick or something. Throws a lot of kicks. She doesn't check leg kicks, which I don't like. But also, we talked about the clinch with the Paulo. The clinch is a strong area for Belvitsa. Uh, good, uh, in like in, good knees inside, but she also like will sneak in like an inside trip. But again, also weak defensive wrestler. We we, we saw that against Molly McCann. Molly McCann mounted her. Uh, Luana Joshua submitted her. So as far as prediction goes, so this is a really close fight between what I think is really good strikers and, but both bad on the ground. But I would say I'm probably higher on two girls that are really close to 
possibly being cut, especially uh, Apollo being that she's, I mean, I guess Belvisa wouldn't be close to being cut. She is technically coming off the win, but if it becomes a grappling match, I probably will favor Apollo because, yeah, well, she goes for headlocks and she has been headlocked. I've seen some offensive grappling her. However, if it stays on the feet, I'm actually going to lean a little bit towards Belvitsa. Um, I think this is going to be a striking battle. I, th- I think that's what I'm hoping to be because I think it should have really fun extensions. I think it's going to be razor close. I think that's what the odds go by. I'm, I am going to agree with the odds. I'm going to go with the favor, and I'll take Belvitsa by split decision. Great. I, I see it pretty much the same way you do. It, w- it would be interesting if DePaula realized that she's at a little bit of a deficit on the feet and just sold out to get this thing on on the ground you know that that would make for an i mean it probably wouldn't make for the most exciting fight but uh it might maximize her chances to win but i'm with you i don't think that's going to happen i think uh she's going to oblige belbitsa with a striking battle they're both good strikers but belbitsa at least in terms of uh credentials outside of mma obviously you know much more established and i'm gonna say she gets it done by decision as well so uh that's two for diana belbitsa to even her record up in the ufc at 500. next up at ufc fight night 201 is a bantamweight matchup between two men who are looking for their first win in the octagon though in one case uh, it's his first chance at one so can hardly blame him it's chad and helliger versus jesse strader and Helliger, the 35-year-old Canadian, is 11-5 and five overall. This will be his UFC debut. He fought on the Contender Series uh, last September and took a split decision over the heavily favored Muin Gafarov, who was uh, going into it considered one of the more intriguing prospects in the entire season. That upset brings basically the 30 mid-30s journeyman and Helliger to the big show where he's going to get a chance to uh, get it done against Jesse Strader. The 30-year-old Canadian, sorry, 30-year-old Californian is 5-2 and two overall. He is 0-1 in the UFC. Uh, he joined as a standout from Combate Global and uh, debuted last March at UFC on ESPN, Brunson versus Holland, where he got knocked out in about two minutes by Montel Jackson. It was a quick knockout. Odds on this one, uh, Heavily favor the newcomer, and Helliger, minus 275, straighter plus 225 on the comeback. Uh, Keith, I mean, I think it's fair to ask, is either of these guys UFC material in your opinion? Does either of, if they are, does either of them have, you know, like contender level upside? And how do you see this one playing out? Yeah, so that's a pretty loaded question on the UFC material, because it, what's the answer to that? Because there are probably easily i mean how many how many fighters are on the usc ross let's see 500 give or take more like 600 yeah Six, close okay, to 600 yes 600, yeah. 600 well half of those guys are equal to this 300 guys in the regional scene as good as the you know 300 guys in the usc like this you know there's a handful of guys that no doubt these are the top guys but so are they ufc material yeah they are just like the guy who's fighting third from the top in lfa is probably ufc material does that make sense? It, you know what? And forgive me for going on an aside here, but really, I think the fact that I use that term and usually we toss it back and forth kind of unchallenged, is yeah. it's a sign of the fact that we came from an era where UFC level meant a lot more. It's You're like muted. the, yeah, it's like when um, NFL 
spring training happens and uh, the Patriots make their last cuts. And so there's always that guy, NFL ready. Well, yeah, the guy who just the left tackle who just got tucked, cut by the Patriots could probably make the 53-man roster on the Jaguars. But the Jaguars don't pick him up because he's as about as good as their guy who's at the end of their roster. But their guy's been here. They know the character of the guy. They uh, he knows the playbook. Like why bring this? You know, if there's an injury, then we bring this guy. Like, but there's 200 guys cut from the NFL that could still play for another. You know. So that's kind of I feel like I, 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 it's kind of weird. Listen, there's not a lot to talk about this card, so let's let's talk about these. So yeah, uh, the other what was the other question? Uh, oh, I want to ask you is, and Helliger, is he the biggest favorite on the card? No, there's one He's or not, two that okay. are, but okay. it's close to it. It's yeah. up there, and I'll yeah. say this before I get to bring it, like, and Helliger should not be almost a three to one favorite against anybody in the UFC. Oh well. I hate to tell you this, but one of the bigger favorites on the card is Parker Porter. <laughs> so I can't wait till we get to that one. But please, yeah, like, right. yeah, we'll, we'll save that one. Yeah, yeah, we can't, you know, we can't get the dessert. It was we're still eating the hors d'oeuvres here. Uh, so Strader, you know, he's been in the USB before, <laughs> not, not a great <laughs> debut, but uh, is striking. He's a very boxing heavy striker. His hands aren't that fast, but he and he throws from his hips. He throws from his hips, but not in the sense where, like, sometimes I'll say a guy throws from his hips and it's like a good thing where uh, it's kind of hard to pick up. And there's actually a guy I want to talk about later about that. Uh, he, his is just a lack of technique. Uh, he does have good output. I like that. He attacks with combinations. I like that he works to the body. I mentioned it last time. He going back uh, on the regional scene, Marcelo Rojo, he he dropped him with a body shot, which you like that. Uh, he actually goes to the body more than he goes upstairs to the chin. Uh, he has decent power. Uh, he likes a lot of calf kicks, but he's got huge defensive holes. I talked about him dropping his hands. Uh, he lacks head movement. He's he's very, very hittable. He backs straight up on a center line. He doesn't check leg kicks. Um, his hands are kind of slow. Um, I think I already said that. Um Oh, some reason I copied my notes twice. I'm reading them the second time. Uh, he can wrestle, though. Good entries, good top control, good ground and pound. But I'm really worried about the damage he's taken. Uh, Rojo put a beating on him when I watched their fight. And Montel Jackson, and he ran right through him. Now, Montel Jackson, like we, we talk about what is a UFC caliber. Montel Jackson's a for sure UFC caliber fighter. There's no doubt. Uh, move over to Ellie and Halliger. You mentioned he's 35 years old. Like you can't get excited about a guy 35, and he's coming out of a split decision. Like I thought he won that fight, but if he lost the split decision on, on the contender series, like it would have been an outrage. Uh, things I like about him, he's he's a pressure fighter, but it's like a controlled pressure, which is which is uh, obviously an asset. Like he's not rushing things, but he's he's forcing his opponent back. Works a jab. He likes to follow up up the middle, like I call up the middle shots. So uppercuts knees, things that actually stop wrestlers from coming in, but also lands uh, some good power shots. He's a weak defensive wrestler, and the, and he makes it worse because he loves jumping guillotine. Yes. <laughs> uh, to his credit, he does have three subs, um, but despite the win over Gafaroff, like he jumped, got mounted, especially in the front, he got mounted by Gafaroff and get his, gave up his back like, like three or four times. But to his credit, he never settled for being on bottom. He kept working. He kept his hips moving, kept scrambling. 
And if he ends up on top, he showed some good ground and pound in the past, and he's got great cardio. He won that fight based on his cardio. He was able to go hard for 15 minutes while Gafarov was starting to fade. I'm not high on either, but I'm going to go with the Canadian simply because he showed me he has some balls. Uh, You know, he beat a good fighter in Gafarov. In Gafarov, I I would say it's safe to say I think Gafarov would would be straighter. And he showed that, you know, it came to him digging deep. There was a lot of like these like 50-50 position battles where Gafarov's in on a double and they're kind of pressing against the cage. He's falling over and, and, you know, or he's trying to work a a wizard. And if he gives up that position, he might lose the round. And he didn't. I think we might have a similar fight, and I think he just digs deep and he wins the later rounds again. Give me an Helliger by decision. I, I'm with you here. Like, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of upside to either of these guys, but you know, and Helliger, he is better than his record looks. You look at his record, and he's 11 and five. But what he really is is he started his career two and five, fighting at featherweight and. You know, even like I think he had like a 150 pound uh, fight in one of those kind of buckled down, started fighting at Bantamweight and he's won uh, like six or seven straight. Uh, And like you say, he beat Gafarov, who's a good fighter. Uh, Before that, he he beat Brady Heastand, who was your runner up on this last season of tough. And, you know, he uh, he's in the UFC as well. Uh, So, you know, regardless of whether. UFC level means that much now. He's proven that he can hang with fighters who are or should be good enough to be on UFC roster, whereas Strader really has not yet. And Strader's weaknesses, which you uh, pointed out, don't line up well against what Ann Helliger does. Uh, And I'm not sure that Strader is going to be the one to take advantage of Ann Helliger's porous takedown defense. So... I think Ann Helliger gets it done, and I think he actually probably finds the knockout at some point. So give me Ann Helliger by second-round knockout. We now head to the featherweight division for a matchup between Chaz Skelly and Mark Striegel. Skelly, the 36-year-old Texan, is 18-3 with one no contest overall. He is 7-3 with one no contest in the UFC. He did win his last outing. Uh, It was a unanimous decision over Jordan Griffin at UFC Fight Night, Cowboy versus Gaethje. That's the good news. The bad news is that that was in September 2019. This is uh, his first fight in about 30 months. And welcoming him back is uh, Striegel. The 33-year-old Filipino is 18-3 and three with one no contest overall, which, by the way, we will occasionally come across a matchup between two fighters with the same record, but it's usually a, a more common and straightforward record. Two guys that are 18-3 and three with one no contest – this is the only time you will ever see this. So, you know, enjoy that because it's one of the more interesting details about this fight. 18 3 and 1 overall. He is 0 and 1 in the UFC. Uh, made his debut last, or no, sorry, made his debut in October of 2020, uh, getting knocked out by Saeed Nurmagomedov in the first round at UFC Fight Night Ortega versus Korean Zombie. This is his first fight in uh, almost a year and a half, almost exactly a year and a half. Uh, I do not envy the odds makers that need to lay odds on uh, a fight like this, but uh, apparently going with the fact that Skelly has been more proven against uh, higher level opposition and that Striegel is moving up from bantamweight to featherweight for this fight, Skelly is minus 220, Striegel plus 180. Keith, I can see the expression on your face. Take it away. 
Yeah, so I mean, I get it. Striegel has not shown anything to to get excited about, but man, it's hard to have a lot of confidence in Jazz Skelly when he's been out this long. I mean, two and a half years, uh, he's dealt with a lot of injuries, a bunch of other stuff. You have to ask the question: What kind of with the layoff and the injuries? What kind of damage has that done to to a guy who, you know, wasn't a top notch featherweight to begin with? Now and is thirty six now. Thirty six. Oh my god, he's so much older than. Uh, I think I knew he was up there, but I didn't think he was that old. Um, he, we last seen him, he was he's a very big featherweight. He's he's not a great athlete. Um, his stand up is kind of ugly. He his punches and kicks are kind of slow. He can get he can get a little wild too at times. Uh, he backs straight up on the center line. He does like to wrestle, though he often shoots without any setup. He's more of a funk wrestler than an, like an explosive athlete. Yeah, um, but he's pretty good at winning scrambles. He's a pretty good grappler in that sense. He's got like, some good back takes. He's got ten submission wins, though he will often find himself in bad positions. He'll chase submissions that aren't there. Um, and like he's, go back to like Jordan Griffin. He was mounted by Jordan Griffin, who which which says all you want. Now, Striegel is is the same way I kind of feel about a lot of these other guys. He's thirty three years old. Like he's not some spring chicken himself. Um, he's not from a like hotbed MMA, he, I know he came out of the Philippines. I think he did move to Vegas though recently to tell like he moved to Vegas to be around. So when someone misses weight, like, Hey, I it put me in, uh, which that's a nice story. Uh, so what I've seen, I haven't done too much study. I'd, I'd say probably everybody on this card is the guy I've seen the least in, uh, he's a Southpaw. He's pretty heavy on his front foot, more of like a karate base. Um, he will, he will march forward with a with a quick flurry. Throws a lot of kicks. He he's a good wrestler. I like that. What I've seen, he likes a lot of collar ties or like digging for underhooks, digging for like pummeling, and then kind of come to inside trips. Uh, very. It looks like almost like a Greco-Roman background in that sense. Well, obviously, I and before anybody at me, I understand Greco-Roman. You cannot touch legs before you get at me. But um, the the just the inside battling. What I'm talking about. Uh, but, uh, you know, very similar, like you see with like Henry Cejudo with these in- inside trips, heavy top pressure. I like that. Um, he, the one thing I don't like, I saw one fight, it was, I think it was two or three fights ago. He was on top and then he went for a headlock and like going for the like, scarf hold, as they call it, or we, in the wrestling, we just call it headlock, which is cool. If you want to put your opponent's shoulders on the mat for one second to get a pin, but in MMA, it's really bad because it gives them the chance to take your back. Uh, he does have a scarfold submission on his record, which uh, oh three wow I, he has I, three scarfolds on his record. Oh, so keep that's doing gotta, it. That's got to be a men's record. It. But you know what? Like if we're being honest, scarfolds only working at scrubs. It's it's it's. I just think headlocks in general only works. Like you don't see a lot of headlocks in the Olympic wrestling. Uh, and and before it was my go-to move in in high school, but that's because I was the king of the scrubs. Yeah, you, like, you, I mean, I didn't know. Did you wrestle in the Olympics? Were you, or you nope, just, nope. just missed the cut, right? No, just, <laughs> you came in like William Knight. You were 12 pounds oh, yeah. over. Um, he likes guillotines, though. He'll jump a guillotine, but he also like has this high, um, what do they call it, a uh, like five-finger guillotine or like a like slide it all the way down to the elbow. So I like that, some standing guillotines. As far as the prediction goes, man, I, I was going to take – Skelly, I mean, he's, he's as you mentioned, he's a pretty big favorite. Um, I was gonna take him simply because I, I don't really have a f- that fair of assessment of Siegel. Um, 
unfortunately, you kind of run out of time with film study and don't get to do an, as deep a film study on every fight as I want. And Striegel was one of those guys. But when you start telling me about the like one, I was reading my notes on Chess Kelly. I remember like, wow, when I wrote these notes earlier this week, <laughs> I, in my head, they were better than actually what I'm reading. But uh, 36 concerns me. Long layoff, a guy that I was never really that high on, not a great athlete. Um, he might not even have the wrestling advantage, which is really where he excels. Like now, if he takes down Striegel and submits him, that would not surprise me at all. But and if Striegel headlocks him and scarfolds him, that really would surprise me. I was, I was gonna go with Skelly, but you know, sometimes you gotta just say screw it. I'm gonna go with the unknown, and uh, you know, what? give me Mark Striegel. I want to take Striegel by decision. There you go. A, a strong pick. Uh, you know, no, grounded no, in, in high right. confidence by, by no. I'm just messing. No, I, in, in thinking about this fight, they, they keep just giving me reasons not to pick them. Like that Skelly, the layoff has been so long. Like I hate picking a fighter coming off that long a layoff, uh, especially when it was, you know, due to multiple injuries, uh, especially when they went from age, you know, 35 to he's going to be 37 in May. Like, all those things, especially at featherweight, you know, really make me question. But then, you know, you look at Striegel. And aside from, you know, a win over Kai Car France in 2014, not high-level competition. And most of his, like, if you, like any tape that you do watch on him, and like you, you know, I've watched a couple of reels and then, like, I think two of his, like, full fights getting away with a lot of stuff that just it's not going to work on grapplers in the UFC, let alone someone like Skelly who really does know how to take care of himself. But then, you know, again, Skelly's been gone for two and a half years, but Striegel, he's moving up from Bantamweight and he's fighting a big featherweight. You know, I'm going with Skelly on this one, just, but there's not much confidence in it. And it's really just based on, I haven't seen Striegel do much that I think is going to work on Chaz Kelly if he's anything like he was. And that's that's all I'm really basing this on. Uh, give me Skelly by decision, but I am no more confident in my pick than he is in his. You know you know what my pick is? Uh, this week I saw someone on, on Twitter be like, hey, Ben, way to pick all these upsets. And I'm like, oh, man, that used to be my thing. Let me get some upsets on this card. <laughs> oh, well, I, well, I picked seven uh, upsets out of 15 fights on – um, that's pretty good. UFC 271, but there's been at least one card where you pick basically half upsets as well. I need to go see what our record I is. Think one, I went, I picked nine out of 13, but what everyone remembers that I picked like nine out of 13 upsets, but I got like three of them right. It was like, I did terrible. <laughs> like, record of that card was like, like three and three and 12 or something. <laughs> sometimes they pan out and sometimes they don't. Bet responsibly, folks. We now head back down to the Bantamweight division for a matchup between Jessica Rose Clark and Stephanie Egger. Clark, the 34-year-old Australian by way of Las Vegas, is 11-6 with one no contest. Overall, she is 4-2 in the UFC, and her UFC run has consisted of two wins, two losses, followed by two wins. Most recently, uh, she beat Sarah Alpar by a third-round TKO in one of the worst beatdowns of 2020 at UFC uh, Fight Night, Covington versus Woodley. 
back in September of 2020, came back in October of last year and took a unanimous decision over uh, Jocelyn Edwards at UFC Fight Night, Costa versus Vittori. That allowed her to put the brakes on a two-fight skid against Penny Kianzad and Jessica I. She'll be taking on Egger. The 33-year-old Swiss fighter is 6-2 and two overall. Uh, she is 1-1 one and one in the UFC. She lost her debut by unanimous decision to Tracy Cortez in October of 2020. Took a whole year off. Came back last October at UFC Fight Night Santos versus Walker and knocked out uh, Shannon Young in the second round. Clark is a moderate favorite. She's minus 190. Egger around plus 165, plus 170 as the uh, underdog. Keith. Who gets it done? Is it Jesse Jess or is it Stephanie Egger? Yeah, this is this is a tough one. Uh, so yeah, I always say this every time with Jesse Rose Clock, right? I think she said she's about 34 years old. Like, just surprised me. She's just every time, like, I just expect her to be much younger than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she's not an elite athlete, but she makes it up by just uh, fighting smart, fighting with a lot, a lot of pressure. She gets in the pocket. She unloads all her power shots. Really um, pretty good snap on it. She she doesn't like being pressured back, though, because she's kind of flat-footed. Uh, she wants to battle either all the way in or in that mid-range, uh, where she kind of like shows a very slip-and-rip style. She'll slide her head and then kind of counter. Uh, despite being a little undersized for the weight class, she's, she likes to grind in the clinch. She's comfortable there. Uh, she's a strong clinch striker, uh, dirty boxer-type style, likes knees in the clinch, likes to wrestle. If she gets on top, good ground and pound. Um, she's very hard to take down. I like that against uh, Sarah Alpar. Uh, when Alpar was going to take her down, she really um, showed strong takedown defense or ability to get back up. Now move over to Egger. Egger's big for the weight class. Uh, she's a, she's a high-output pu- striker, constantly moving forward, though she's a little bit flat-footed. She also isn't a strong athlete, uh, but she does – she does keep her opponents at the end of her strikes, kind of fight you uh, a little long distance, uh, throws a long jab, not too fast. She also has some flaws defensively. She has a like, tall woman's defense where she will pull her head straight back. Tracy Cortez blasted her for this bad technique. Uh, she is a judo black belt and has some really good throws and, and trips inside. She's a high-level BJJ uh, competition, like practitioner. She's she's medaled at... Um, Abu Dhabi and, and BJJ, but her wrestling, she has a BJJ wrestling style. Like she's, she was out wrestled by Tracy Gortel. So she's undersized for the weight class. Um, and for a credential grappler, Cortez had like a lot of success, like taking her back and uh, really surprising, but she has a submission threat. Uh, but that submission attack is more of a judo style. Well, she'll throw up submission at submission, jump into him. Um, but she looked much better in her last fight against Shana Young. So as the prediction goes, this is a really tough one to call. Um, Rose, Rose Clark is just like a dirt dog. She's one of these fighters that aren't oozing with athleticism, but she's intelligent to really know her strengths, how to get the fight where she wants. Uh, she could easily win this striking battle. However, if it gets to the clinch, I'm really torn because Edgar is the more credentialed grappler, but... We've seen her look really bad, and we've actually seen Clark do really well in, in grappling exchanges. This is going to be back and forth. 
I originally was going to go with the upset again. I was going to go with Egger in a split decision, being that she's the more decorated. But I've learned my lesson on on, on Jessica Rose Clark. I kind of picked against her a couple times, and she keeps finding ways to win. And being that I was stupid enough to pick an upset in my last fight, I'm going to hedge my bets. And uh, I'm going to switch back from my original pick to Jessica Rose Clark. I'm going to say she wins a very grimy, very close split decision. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you pointed out a couple of the things that you did there because uh Clark, I feel as though she is becoming I mean, she's becoming the best fighter that, that Jesse Clark can be, given her, you know, physical tools. Uh she does seem undersized for Bantam weight, but clearly making flyweight was miserable for her to the point that it was impacting her performances. I never felt like we saw the best like Jessica Rose Clark there. And she seems to have turned a corner in these last couple of fights, you know, the Sarah Alpar fight and the Edwards fight. And I like that you said intelligent because in both cases, uh, she really fought to her best advantage. Uh, you know, since being a syndicate, like clearly working with, uh, uh, with John Wood and probably having someone like Roxanne Modafferi, the ultimate overachiever as a, probably a primary training partner. I mean, Sarah Alpar, is a wrestler who needed to wrestle and Jesse Clark, you, you, you mentioned that like all the way in is one of her favorite spots. I mean, she just absolutely mauled Alpar uh, in the clinch. Like she knew that Alpar needed clinch takedowns. It's just, it's what turned it into just such a brutal beating. And then against Jocelyn Edwards, someone who, you know, a fast, hard hitting striker with better reach and range. She just nailed takedown. I mean, I felt like she got like 10 takedowns in that fight. I know she didn't, because otherwise there would be some like kind of record in my head. But I, I feel as though she used her wrestling to neutralize Edwards in all three rounds. It's the Alpar fight that makes me think that the clinch is not going to be the sweet spot for Egger that it needs to be in order for her to win this fight. And because of that, I'm with you. I'm going with Clark to win this one in kind of a grimy decision. You know, I remember her last loss being kind of a grimy, grindy loss to Pani Kianzad. And since then, she's kind of like just taken that crown and taken that same style that Kianzad uses on everybody and taken it and moved forward herself. You know, if they fought again, maybe it'd even go differently. But for now, on Saturday, I do think she wins a decision over Stephanie Egger. Next up at UFC Fight Night 201 is a men's featherweight matchup between Gabriel Mowgli Benitez and David the Silent Assassin Onama. Benitez, the 33-year-old Mexican, is 22 and 9 overall. He is 6 and 5 since joining the UFC out of the first season of Tough Latin America. Uh, he is currently has he's lost three of his last four. Uh, lost his last time out. It was a third-round TKO against Billy Quarantillo at UFC on ESPN Makachev versus Moises last July. Prior to that, he got a first-round knockout of Justin Jane's at UFC on ESPN, Hermanson versus Vittori back in December of 2020. Uh, he'll be taking on Onama. The 27-year-old Glory MMA and fitness product is 8-1 and one overall. His lone loss was in his last fight. It was his short-notice UFC debut at UFC Fight Night Costa versus Vittori last October. About as excusable as they come, considering that he is a habitual featherweight who stepped up on day's notice to fight at lightweight against Mason Jones, one of the more intriguing prospects in the division. 
made it to the final horn, lost a righteous unanimous decision, but uh, was pretty much guaranteed a more appropriate matchup for a second fight. He is getting that in the form of Benitez, and he is the slight favorite here. Uh, minus 145, where the man they call Mowgli is plus 125. Uh, you and I both said on the preview for Onama's uh, short notice debut that you know this this is a guy who was going to be on the contender series if not called up to the UFC anyway within a year or so obviously glory MMA and fitness has been the UFC's like I assume they just have like a red button on the desk you know or on the wall where they hit that and you know uh, yeah. James Krause ha ha has your man at the door you know you know they are? you know what they are they're the um you're getting home late from work and you're like, oh, I'm not cooking. All right, Subway or McDonald's <laughs> or what? Like, that's glory. Right? Just call well, you. They're more like DoorDash because whatever you oh, want. Okay, there you go. They're okay. the one that's going to bring it to you yeah, in like 20 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good, good, good call. They're, they're the, the Uber Eats of, of, the, of the UFC. But you and I even both said after the, the fight. sponsor of this show, right? Oh, yeah. please. <laughs> uh, you and I both said afterwards that. Onama probably helped his stock as much as Jones did because he hung tough. I thought he won uh, one round against uh, Jones. And we're talking about Jones, a guy that we both think has pretty good upside. Onama fought him on like four days notice, up a weight class. And if nothing else showed that, yeah, he belongs. Uh, does he prove beyond a doubt that he belongs here against someone who, if nothing else, in Benitez, he's over 500 in the UFC and he's been here for like eight years. Does he get it done? Yeah, this is a tough call because he kind of goes from one extreme to the other, but they're both really tough tests. So Mason Jones is this guy who's nowhere near a finished product but has a huge potential, huge upside. While Benitez doesn't have that potential, but he's really a finished, polished product. Like, he's he's established. So it, it really is a tough test. I mean, Benitez, he's a southpaw kickboxer who really – he's technically sound kickboxer. He has this in-and-out game where he does really well to – you know, crash the pocket, land some power shots, and then get out before being countered. Um, uh, he likes to throw a very busy jab from distance. Once he starts establishing the jab, that, then he starts opening up the power shots. He kind of uses that jab to uh, set up these power shots to distract for the power shots coming. His left hand is really accurate. Uh, he likes to go down to the body, go downstairs and work uh, the midsection. I'd say plus power. He's not he's not a big like one punch power guy, but he you know, he can hurt you if if he starts flowing. A strong kicking game, hard body kicks, hard calf kicks. Uh, I, I mean, I always have to bring it up that time where he busted open his own calf from throwing it so much, and uh, really, really gross. It's still painful to remember. He can wrestle, but he doesn't do it often, and he's a good grappler when he has to. But again, he I don't think he'll be the one who initiates grappling. Now, move over to Nama. You mentioned, you know, Glory MMA product, which is a team. Besides, like we were making jokes about how many guys they're getting in. Uh, it's a blossoming team. It's a team that's not only getting guys in. That yeah, some guys maybe not shouldn't be in, but there's a lot of quality guys coming out of that gym. Well, uh, if, if they were doing this right now and they were based in Vegas, it would just be convenience. That yes. it's a gym in Kansas City that's sending this many people to the UFC on short notice. It's because they got good fighters. Yeah, and they also all have the same mentality of the of the James Krause, the coach. Like, ready, be don't get ready, be ready. Fight anyway, take the, any opportunity you can get to get in. 
Yeah. Well, I, mean, I assume every time one of those guys steps up, Kraus wanted it and they just wouldn't let him. No, right. no, send one of your guys. That's right. <laughs> like, like William Knight, Miss Wayne. Kraus was like, I'll fight. I'll, I'll Dude, fight a light heavyweight. Kraus was Kraus was there. I was kind of like looking at him. He was in the room when <laughs> Knight and Miss Wade. I was kind of looking over there, like, dude, how much do you weigh right now? <laughs> uh, Ricky so, Simone was there, and he looked like he probably weighed about two eighteen. Yeah, I know he's a massive uh, bantamweight as it is. Oh, dude, his, his head couldn't make bantamweight today. Oh no, no, sorry, featherweight. He's a featherweight. No, he, uh, uh, he's, he's a bantamweight. Yeah. No, Ricky okay. Simone's a bantamweight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The whole fight in Brian Kelleher messed me up because Kelleher yeah. bounced back and forth. Uh, so back to Anama, uh, you know, he's, I know he's from Uganda. He's a very aggressive striker. He, he can fight both Southpaw and Orthodox, a lot of variety of strikes, punches, kicks, elbows, knees, uh, a lot of knees coming up the middle, step in knees, some negative I've seen. He drops his hands. He can get a little wild, can get drawn into a firefight. Uh, he throws some naked leg kicks. He's a decent wrestler, more of a Michael Chiesa type where he kind of uses his natural long arms and stuff to get takedowns, but he's not a good defensive wrestler. And that was the difference in the fight against Mason Jones. Mason Jones took him down eight times. Um, he does have three sub wins and he, he can fade late due to his aggressive nature. I'm giving him a pass against Mason Jones, but I didn't think he faded that bad based on taking the fight on like four or five days notice. But something has to be said that he turned – obviously Mason Jones is a good wrestler, but he turned Mason Jones strictly into a wrestler based on what he can do on his feet. Uh, I shouldn't say strictly because there were some good exchanges, but I mean where Mason Jones realized the best avenue of victory is to turn this into a wrestling match. Now, I like Onama on the feet. He has just this raw potential. Benitez has also showed some signs, like especially in that Billy Quintillo fight, that he might be fading a little. Um, Benitez is the more technically sound fighter. He's also the better wrestler, and he could win if he goes against his natural instincts to want to stand up. However, I don't think Benitez will. I think he's going to give Onama every chance he can to win this fight. I think he's going to stand and bang with Onama. And honestly, I think that's going to be a bad choice. I think Onama's going to be too fast. And... Remember, he's young, so he's got to be improving. And I think one guy might be improving, the other guy might be fading. So uh, I hate going against Benitez because he's always been a kind of guy that I've really respected, and I thought he's a really underrated fighter. But at this point, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the you know fairly newcomer and Onama by decision. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on all these points, especially the one that Onama is a guy who is still putting it together. Uh, you know, like. He's 27 years old. This is going to be his 10th professional mixed martial arts uh, fight. And he's at a gym that right now is really riding a high where not only are they sending a bunch of fighters to the UFC, but, you know, they've just got a great crop of fighters right now. And a lot of them really are improving quickly. And I agree with you that the wear and tear might start to be getting to Benitez. He's started to fight a little more sporadically recently, and he fights in the style that when it goes off a cliff, it's going to go off a cliff fast. I like that you mentioned that he can grapple, but you don't think he will in this fight because he's a guy that if you look at his record, well, he's got more submissions than knockouts, but he had a ton of submissions in Mexico and Central America on his way up. Uh, even though he was a kickboxer, even then, you know, he he liked to finish things on the ground with a submission once he had people hurt, Uh you know, probably as a way of being able to fight as often as he did, because, you know, get it to the ground, there's less of a chance you're going to get 
a cut that makes you not able to take that fight that you already signed up for in a month. But whatever the case, since he's been in the UFC, he's been strictly a striker, except when forced out of that by his opponent. I don't think Onama's going to force him out of it. Uh, Onama could take him down, probably, but I think this is going to stay on the feet. It'll be an entertaining fight, but I do expect Onama to probably win all three rounds. That brings us to what, as the card is currently constituted, as of uh, Friday night, a week out from fight night, the top prelim. It is a bantamweight matchup, and worth mentioning that for all the flaws this card has, there's not a fight above featherweight on the entire undercard, so it should at least be good, good popcorn viewing. This is Mario Bautista versus Khalid Taha. Uh, Bautista, the 28-year-old MMA lab product, is 8-2 and two overall. He is 2-2 two and two in the UFC. Uh, he lost his last time out, a second-round knockout at the hands of Trevin Jones. That uh, broke a two-fight win streak for him over Jin Susan and Miles Johns. Uh, he'll be taking on Taha. The 29-year-old German is 13-4 and four with one no contest overall. He is 1-3 uh, and three with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, he is on a two-fight losing streak. Those are both unanimous decisions and both over pretty high-level fighters in Hani Barcelos and Sergei Morozov. The most recent of those, the Morozov loss, was at UFC on ESPN, Makachev versus Moises last July. Uh, the no contest immediately prior to those two losses was a win over Bruno Silva that was overturned when Taha tested positive for a banned diuretic. So the only uh, win he has still left standing in the UFC is a win over Boston Salmon all the way back in 2019. Despite that, uh, odds are very close on this one. Bautista just the barest of favorites at minus 120. Taha, at least a week out from fight night, is available at even money plus 100. Uh, Keith, you said off mic before we started this segment, this is a great fight. I agree. Uh, you know, it has at least candidate for fight of the night written all over it. But how do you see it playing out and who do you think gets their hand raised? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, one of the one of my favorite fights on this card. Uh, Batista, actually, both guys are two guys that I've, I think are a little underrated, especially to based on you know his record in the UFC. I think he's better than... And he's facing really good guys. I think he's better than his record indicates. Uh, Batista, he's a uh, good striker. He does really well to use movement and feints to kind of keep his range. He likes to work from distance, uh, get his opponents guessing. He did that really well against Miles Johns. He'll strike and then get out of before there's a counter. Uh, he's he's good at not attacking on a straight line. It's a lot of sidestepping when he's attacking. He does lack power though. He's more of a like round winner than he is, you know, knock you out kind of guy. Uh, I love that he's added knees to his game. He looks for stepping knees, and then obviously has that flying knee against Miles Johns. Uh, uh, he has been hurt to the body. And it seems like a little bit of a kryptonite for him, uh, and he was knocked out in his last fight, so that's concerning. Uh, he. Inside, he's a good clinch striker. He's he's tall for the division. Uh, gets to the clinch. Uh, he's a weak offensive wrestler, and, and he's probably he might even worse with the defensive wrestling. But if if when taken down, he does really well to keep the scramble going and get back to his feet. So I like that. Then move over to Taha on the feet. He, he he's just a really fun, exciting fighter. He's very aggressive. Who is a very good athlete. He. Uses a lot of movement, especially laterally, to kind of um, dart back and forth. 
get in range. His output against Ronnie Barcelos is Ronnie Barcelos is really impressive. That's why he was in that fight. It was a closer fight than people remember. Quick hands. Uh, he stays behind a high guard defense, throws a lot of combos, has good power, does really good to keep his base underneath him and to land power shots. Really good at timing his opponent's attacks. Uh, good example, again, is the Hani Basalis fight. Uh, he was meeting him at the point of contact a lot. Um, yeah, he did really well to answer a lot of Basalis, you know, power shots with combination of his own. Um, he's... He does gain a lot more power when he's moving forward than instead of moving back. But because of his heavy base and being on the front leg, he's open to leg kicks. He doesn't really check leg kicks. He's a decent wrestler, uh, pretty good at scramblers. He, uh, scrambles. He's hard to submit. I mean, going back, I, I know I'm breaking records. I just watched the Hani uh, Barcelos fight. But Barcelos took his back and couldn't finish him. And that's, that's saying a lot because Barcelos is a good grappler. Uh, and he showed in that fight he can take a beat and keep going. He's got a lot of heart. So as far as prediction goes, this is a really tough one. These two fighters are, are guys that I like more than probably most. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean with the upset again. Uh, Batista is the more technically sound fighter. However, Ta is not gonna be outworked. He's not gonna let Batista just stay out at range and not be challenged. He's also the harder hitter. I think this is gonna be an absolute war. Uh, I'm gonna go with the harder hitter. Give me Taha in a razor close split decision. I, I liked the the breakdown there, and I can absolutely see it playing out that way. This should be a, a really fun fight. Both guys have avenues to victory over the other that they probably will not take full advantage of, and I have the feeling that's just going to turn into a fun stand-up war. And I think a lot of it is going to hinge on who kind of leads the dance, whether it's uh, Taha coming forward and forcing Batista onto the back foot or, you know, vice versa or, you know, Bautista, as, as you pointed out, maybe taking advantage of Taha's stance and starting to kick his legs early. Uh, I am leaning slightly towards Bautista here, but the longer the fight goes, the more concerned I get, both because of Taha's power and his work rate. So, you know, if it's one round to one going into the third, I'm not feeling good about my pick. Uh, but give me Bautista by probably winning the first two rounds and maybe losing the third in, again, you know, an instant candidate for fight of the night. Next up, unless the card ends up being shaken up between uh, now and fight night, this is scheduled to be the main card opener. It is a middleweight matchup between Joaquin Buckley and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Buckley, the 27-year-old St. Louis native, is 13-4 and overall. He is 3-2 and in the UFC. Uh, coming off a win in his last fights, uh, a third-round knockout of Antonio Hoyo at UFC Fight Night Smith versus Span last September. That allowed him to bounce back from getting head-kicked by Alessio DiCirico, of all people, at uh, the inaugural UFC on ABC card all the way back last January. Uh, he is taking on Al-Hassan, the 36-year-old uh, Dallas-area native out of Fortis MMA, is 11-4 and overall. He is 5-4 and four in the UFC. Uh, he won his last time out actually head-kicking DeKirico in just 17 seconds, an absolute highlight reel uh, candidate for knockout of the year and probably saved his job in the UFC and put the skids on one of the more miserable rolling years you'll ever see for a fighter in the UFC that keeps his job. As in 2020, he went 0-2, uh, missing weight both times and thereby 
losing himself, not just win bonuses, but uh, at least 50,000 in uh, bonus money as one of those fights, one fight of the night, and all of it went to his opponent. Then his first fight of 2021, uh, a pretty discouraging loss to Jacob Malkoon, but you know, everything turns around with that highlight reel knockout last August, and he enters this fight as just the slightest of underdogs. Uh, Al Hassan plus 130, Buckley minus 150. Uh, this is about as close to a mirror match as you'll get in the UFC. I mean, these are two guys who were, I mean, neither of them is super tall, but they're just so heavily muscled that they were basically forced up from uh, welterweight to uh, to middleweight Al Hassan by missing weight twice once by like six pounds uh, Buckley by just you know he's three and two in the UFC but he also went three and two in Bellator at 170 and just never looked that good and in hindsight considering how he looks physically and how he performs now it's probably just because he was killing himself to make uh, 170 and he's still just 27 now at the time he was in Bellator. He was like, you know, 23, 24 years old, just not a finished product yet. But you know, both these guys nominally have, you know, a ground game. You know, Al Hassan's nickname is judo thunder Buckley, you know, was uh, a, a very good high school wrestler, but in practice, these are both knockout artists. Um, you know, Al Hassan, I, I mean, the head kick knockout of Dakirico aside, his punches have typically been his lights out, uh, you know, go-to techniques. So the fact that he just threw up that lightning fast, like untelegraphed high kick and laid out Dakirico should be a worrisome proposition for any future opponents. Uh, Buckley obviously has one of the greatest knockouts in MMA history. The immortal knockout of Impic Sanganai back in 2020, you know, the spinning like back hook kick in close range that completely destroyed him. Uh, I'm stalling because I have no idea how this fight plays out. I mean, it, it would be easy. It would be easy to say that, okay, this is going to end up with somebody getting a knockout of the year within the first eight minutes of the fight, but it, which it could be, but there's absolutely no guarantee of that because these are both guys. Well, Al Hassan in particular, like yeah. Buckley, Buckley is going to live or, or die by the sword. But Al Hassan, if if the opportunity isn't coming to him, he is willing to wait, and sometimes he's willing to wait to his uh, detriment. Like, uh, you know, Munir Lazez just kind of stymied him. Like he started kicking at his legs and body just at a much niftier uh, striking game, much better schooled striking game, even if Alhassan had more pure power and just Alhassan never, he became trigger shy immediately and just was never in danger of even winning a round. Uh, Jacob Malkoon, uh, of all things, you know, grounded him a couple times and that just took all the wind out of the sails. The, the kicks stopped, the punches stopped, he got shy about range. So if he's coming into this thinking, oh, man, I got to not get knocked out by Buckley. I don't want to get posterized by Buckley. This could turn into a staring contest that Al Hassan loses, but it's not real pretty. Or if he's just going to come in and say, OK, let's throw. It's anybody's fight. But therefore, we're kind of breaking it down by percentages. You know, what's the percent chance that Al Hassan is just going to come in and be like, Buckley has defensive deficiencies as well. 
if I take advantage of them, this is a short night of work and an extra check versus I need to not get knocked out. So that's, I mean, that's kind of on your flow chart. That's uh, decision point number one, which way do we go? And if he goes the way of the firefight, you know, because if he goes the other way, he's going to lose the decision. Like, he loses. He'll be on the back foot and getting just pot shotted. If he goes this way, who who gets lamped? And because of that, even though both these guys could finish the fight, I lean towards Buckley as the more likely winner, just because, you know, he has more avenues. And I think Buckley is probably still on his way up as a fighter. He's still super young. He's still developing new things from fight to fight. And as cool as it was to see Al Hassan ice a man in 17 seconds, his last fight out, he's not going to do that to Buckley. He's definitely not going to throw a head kick in the first like 15 seconds of this fight. I'm going to split the difference and uh, say that Buckley gets a knockout in the second round. But you know, if, if Al Hassan knocks him out, I'm not that surprised. I'm just going with what I think is the main chance here. Yeah, man. Uh, I think you hit this like perfectly a lot of things you said i agree with especially when i came to my prediction um so buckley there's a lot of things you gotta like about him obviously he's a south bowl with an absolute amazing athleticism you said he's got the one of the greatest knockouts in ufc history one of the greatest knockouts in may history i think it is the greatest that's when it's the out of every knockout i've ever seen it's the most memorable to me he's so explosive he has a, this bob and weave style where suddenly against Jordan Roy, he had a lot of more up and down feints, which I like. So he kind of get coming at you at different angles. Uh, for a guy who's so explosive, he's pretty technically sound. Like defensively, he does really well to stay compact. He has a boxing style where he kind of almost like a modified Philly shell where he hides behind his front shoulder. So it's a lot of tight hooks, explodes with uh, power and output. Uh, he loves his straight left. He he has good kicks. He doesn't throw enough kicks, and he doesn't check kicks. Uh, but I, I wish he – I know it's it's kind of crazy to say he doesn't throw enough kicks when his, the most famous moment of his career is a kick, but he really is more of a boxer than a, a kicker. Um, he can sneak in a takedown. You mentioned he has a, a wrestling background. Decent entries, uh, much better using his strength in the clinch, though. If he gets on top, really, really hard ground and pound. Uh, one – thing i said about him in the past is i was worried about his cardio cardio based on all these explosive things but we saw in his last fight he got a third round stoppage in the late in the fight in the third round so move over to al hassan i get it. everything you say about al hassan the only thing i'd say i don't think he was trigger shy against lizaz he, he started off hot i think he burned himself out in that fight uh he's he's fast he's i mean he's 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 exciting prospect when he's going because He's fast. He's explosive. He has humongous power, like scary knock you out like he did in his last fight. One thing I do like is when he grabs hands and he kind of pulls and he wraps around the hands. That's a really good technique. Uh, um, sneak. <laughs> the technique you use against when you're in the gym for a while and you get some like you're working with somebody who's kind of inexperienced. <laughs> you do that. You do that when you spar with a bum. But uh, he does it against really high level. I'm not saying he does it against bumps, but uh and now he could suddenly sneak in a high kick in combinations, landing brutal knockouts. He doesn't check leg kicks. He has, as I mentioned, he punched himself out against Lizez. Uh, he got one punch knocked out against Chaos Williams. You mentioned he has this judo background and this judo name, but he never uses his judo. He hardly ever grapples. He'll sneak in a takedown every once in a while, but hardly ever when he mixes in takedowns. And his takedown defense has been terrible. Jacob Malhoe. Malcolm is not a guy that Jacob Malcolm did 
I think we both said when we broke down his fights, you feel a little better about Malkoon than, and obviously this will, we'll know how this comment ages and we're still taping this before the fights, but uh, he had eight takedowns against Al Hassan in that fight and almost submitted him twice, which is really disturbing. So as far as prediction, I love how you broke it down in the avenues because I hate picking against Al Hassan because I know with him, all it takes is one blow. You said you don't think he can knock out Buckley in 50 seconds. I think he could. Like I, he has that just raw ability. I'm not expecting him to, but it, the further this fight goes, you know, the less likely I think of him landing a shot. And he's facing a guy for the, probably the first time in his career who can match his athleticism. Al Hassan to me really only has only has one good avenue. Or I mean, obviously he has multiple ways to win, but his best avenue is landing a big shot in the first round. That's not the case with Buckley. Like Buckley could just as easily and just as likely land a big shot in the first round. Or he can win a decision. And so like you, I'm going to go with a guy who has more avenues to defeat. If it goes deep in the fight, Buckley's a guy that I think can dig down deeper. Uh, I was I was in the same exact round as you. I said I think he's going to um, survive a flurry from, from Al-Hassan if there is a flurry. And then he's going to find a knockout as, as Al-Hassan starts to fade. I was going... Second round, you want second round, so I'll go. I'll change the third round. Give me Buckley by third round TKO. Next up on the UFC Vegas 48 main card is a lightweight matchup between Jim Miller and Nicholas Mota. Miller, the 38 year old New Jersey native, is 33, 16, and 1 overall. He is 22 and 15 in the UFC. He did win his last time out, got a second round knockout of Eric Gonzalez at UFC Fight Night, Lad versus Dumont in October. That allowed him to put the brakes on a two fight losing streak, both of those unanimous decisions uh, against Vince Pichel and uh, Joe Selecki. He will be finally welcoming Iron Mota to the UFC. We're talking about a man here who. Uh, fought in uh, on Dana White's contender series in November of 2020 and was supposed to fight two different times last year. He was scheduled to fight in May and his opponent fell off. He was scheduled to fight in September. In fact, he was scheduled to fight Jim Miller in September. Miller pulled out with COVID. Uh, I forget who stepped in for Miller on like a week notice, but that guy got injured. So Mota had an opponent change and then the fight fallout within a week of that fight night back in September, he is finally making his debut. Um, <clears throat> he on the contender series beat Joseph Lowry uh, via unanimous decision. Uh, Mota is a moderate favorite to get it here, get it done here in his uh, delayed debut. He is minus 180 Miller plus 155 uh, as of, you know, a, a week out from fight night. Uh, Keith, I was saying to you off mic before we started recording here, you and I have been doing these preview shows for, I think, almost two years now. And I feel as though we're like a funeral home that has presided over like three different funerals for Jim Miller. And he just keeps getting up off off the slab and kind of like, you know, saying, hey, nice suit. Can I keep it? And, you know, like walks yeah. out and go, goes back to the gym. Uh, Jim Miller. Yeah, he's 38 years old and. He is about as old a 38 as you will find in the sport. Like he is, he, I, I would say he's an older 38 than Diego Sanchez. Like he is an old 38. This is his 51st fight. 
Uh, it is his 38th fight in the UFC. And he's been through so many wars. The He's been through wars. He's been through an undiagnosed case of Lyme disease that, I mean, at this point it was diagnosed like six or seven years ago. He's had a whole other career after, uh, you know, that was discovered and treated. At this point, I mean, you and I have both said it. This is a guy who, at his best, he probably was a top five lightweight. Like, there was a time when it was probably just, like, Penn, Maynard, Edgar, Henderson, and he was probably the next guy after that. But at the very least, he was he was firmly in the top ten for a yeah, couple of years. Absolutely. And at there was a point where he could do it all. He wasn't a great striker, but he was okay. He was a good wrestler, unless he was wrestling someone like Maynard or Edgar. Uh, and he was a very good submission grappler. Not a super plus athlete, but, you know, clearly a strong guy with very good conditioning. Almost all of that is gone. You know, uh, the athleticism is gone. The cardio is gone. Just, you know, no matter how hard a worker you are, it, it does betray you at some point. The chin used to be ultra reliable. Uh, he can he he's still hard to knock out but he gets hurt by almost everybody now. Yeah. And I, I think either you or I at one of these premature funerals have said what Jim Miller has left at this point in his career is opportunistic grappling and about seven minutes of cardio. Yeah. So the only question you need to ask yourself is, is this guy someone that Jim Miller can find a submission on without having to get a difficult takedown from the outside within the first round and a half of the fight? Yeah. So I'm going to say about this about Jim Miller. So usually I write all these X's and O's and I have, I have the list if you people really want me to read it, but you say this is, he's had 38 fights in the UFC and like, instead of me breaking down Jim Miller, you know, I, I've been saying the same thing about him for the last five, five, I think we've been doing this. You said two years. I think it's a little under a year and a half, but we've been doing this for a while. When Jim Miller keeps popping up, even when he doesn't fight, his fights get canceled. We had to break it down and we've actually broke this fight down, but just to kind of put in, you know, perspective, 38 fights, Brock Lesnar had eight. Like, he's had five times the the <laughs> UFC appearances that Brock Lesnar had. Like, that's incredible. You know, almost. We saw someone says, hey, my math is wrong. But almost, you know, five times as, as much. In the, uh, well, now, now that you bring that up, I do have a question for you. Good. Brock Lesnar, like never having played football in college, you know, took some time off from the WWE and he went to the Minnesota Vikings training camp and he didn't get cut until the very last round of cuts. And even then they said, if you go play in, in NFL Europe and develop your game for a year, come back and there'll be a place on this roster for you. And he just said no, because he'd been a WWE superstar. He's like, I'm not going to go live in Germany for a year. Yeah. You know, I'll just go do the UFC thing. Was Brock Lesnar an NFL level player. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just I, I wanted to switch back because we were talking about the whole UFC level thing. Yeah, someone should have signed. Lesnar made me think of that. Like, yeah. like a team that needed fans probably should have signed him. Put, yeah. him at, put him at the end of your roster. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how much of a distraction he would have been or whatever, but I, I just imagine, imagine Brock Lesnar like on kick, kick, <laughs> kickoffs, just Brock Lesnar running down the field. Oh, uh, yeah, or, I mean, just, you know, when you got your, you know, like kick blocking 
like yeah. field goal blocking formation, like at the end of the game, just put him on the end because dude, that, he was a fast dude. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow we we blinked Jim Miller to Brock Lesnar. Hey, you, your fault, man. You mentioned Brock yeah. Lesnar. Next next Royal Rumble winner, Jim Miller. <laughs> um, so I'm not gonna do the XNOs. You know, like he he's he's still a good submission artist never been the greatest wrestler like he's a solid wrestler but not a great wrestler but he's a real submissions right show that he has still has a little bit of pop left in the eric gonzalez fight but you mentioned he's taken one even if the wheels haven't fallen off a little bit and, and we have been a little premature being in 38 fights in the ufc as you mentioned being a former you know top 10 maybe top five guy fighting everybody of relevance in the division just taking that damage over the years, it's going to take its toll. Now move over to Moda. He's been on the shelf for a long time, but when we've seen them, he's now he's 29. He's a power-punching striker, fights with, with behind a high guard. He can be tentative to pull the trigger, uh, but when he does, I like what he does. Hard jab, kind of bob and weave shot, uh, style with uh, setting up power shots, rips the body, nice kicks, high kick, strong Muay Thai clinch. Works in knees well. Not much of an offensive wrestler, probably a weaker defensive wrestler, and he's not much of a submission threat. But he does well to get back to his feet. Uh, the one thing I don't like when he has been knocked out a few times in the past, and Jim Miller did show in his last fight, like, don't sleep on him. He still can land a shot. But I really wish Jim Miller retired after his last fight. Like, I just, I get it. Like, not This isn't the show for ranting and, and about fighter pay. There's been plenty of others, and I think I don't know anybody who doesn't believe that fighters should be paid more. Like I get Jim Miller probably has to fight because it's not Aaron Rodgers getting a hundred million dollar contracts. You know that's not that's what the the sport is. So I get it, but that would have been a great way to retire. Like come from behind, win. You land a knockout. Could he win this fight? Yeah, if he gets the fight to the ground and he grapples, yeah, he can win this fight. Is he likely going to win this fight? He, if he does, he's going to have to find a stoppage probably early. As you mentioned, he can't – like he could grapple, but he can't go hard 15 minutes. We've seen that happen. Go back to like the Vince Bichelle fight. That's the one, yep. Yeah. I just – I don't think he can do it anymore. I think this is going to look really bad. I think he's going to get blasted. And you said – you talked about how hard it is to knock him out. Like Dan, uh, I think it was Dan Hooker was the last one to knock him out. Uh, Gonzalez had him hurt many times, and Moda's a harder hitter than Gonzalez. I think Moda puts him out. I'm going to say Moda puts him out in the second round. Uh, give me Moda by TKO. I, I I, couldn't say it better. The the only thing that anything hinges on here, because you know, we both talked about Miller's way to win this is going to find a way to get to the ground in the first round, work quickly, and, and choke the man out. Because even if he takes a 10-8 first round, he's probably lose, losing the fight or at worst, maybe getting a draw. The only real thing to me is, and you mentioned it, is whether Mozart pulls the trigger. Like, if he comes out with purpose, he's going to put Miller away, and it might not even be a second-round thing. But he has been very shy to pull the trigger sometimes, and, you know, who who knows what that time on the shelf will, will do for him. I mean, he's a guy that he could have been in the, even though he's young, I what is he, 29? Yeah, 20, 29. He yeah, could have been in the UF. What's that? Yeah, 29. Yeah, he could have been in the UFC five or six years ago. I mean, yeah. he, he was on Tough Brazil 4, was on the Contender Series. He was a CFFC champ, which, you know, That's the UFC snaps up plenty of those uh, people. Uh, he moved 
his training to Vegas a couple of years ago. You know, like Nova Uniao is a great team, but, you know, guys at Extreme Couture, they get the eyeball on them for uh, sure. short notice things. But who knows what that time off has done to him? You know, uh, if he's improved, if he's even the same, then it really just is a question of how hard he wants to step on the gas. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of with you. He's a little too patient under the best of circumstances. And I think that's the only reason this even makes it to the second round. But uh, give me Mota by second round uh, knockout as well. Yeah, and just to build off your point, we talk about him being scared to pull the trigger. That's him on a regional scene. What happens when he looks across and he sees Jim Miller, you know, a guy who, I mean, he came from similar areas and, and you know, I, I don't know if he's a legend of the sport, but, well, extremely well-known, who's got way more experience. Like, is that going to make him even – and you have, obviously, the UFC jitters and all that stuff they talk about. You know, will that make him even more gun-shy? Who knows? But either way, probably just <laughs> a matter of time. Yeah. yeah, we're both picking him by knockout. But, uh, I mean, at least for me, what I'd like to see is something that tells me that he's he's fixed that going into his, his future fights. Because otherwise, this is kind of a setup for him. Next up at UFC Fight Night 201 is, well, I should never say never since uh, UFC 271 just got an unscheduled heavyweight fight, but as currently scheduled is the only heavyweight fight at UFC Vegas 48. It is Parker Porter versus Alan Bodome. Porter, the 36-year-old Connecticut native, is 11-6 overall. He is a strong and ready 2-1 in the UFC and is on a two-fight win streak. Uh, he lost his debut to Chris Dawkins back in August of 2020. Since then, he has been untouchable, taking unanimous decisions over Josh Parisian and Chase Sherman. The most recent of those, the Sherman win, was last August at UFC on ESPN Cannoneer versus Gastelum. Uh, he'll be taking on Bodeau. The 34-year-old Frenchman is 8-2 with one no contest overall. Uh, 0-1 with one no contest in the UFC. Worth noting that the one no contest was him getting uh, knocked out in the second round by Rodrigo Nascimento uh, and that getting overturned when Nascimento tested positive for banned stimulants. So by the eyeball test of what happened in the cage, he's actually 0-2 with two stoppage losses, but he's officially 0-1 with one no contest. Uh, Porter you know, as befits his uh, winning streak, is one of the higher favorites on the card. He is minus 250, uh, Bodo plus 200 as the substantial underdog. Uh, here are two fighters that, you know, I'll, I'll go first here. Uh, certainly, uh, I mistook or have been mi misrepresented to us based on what we've, you know, uh, seen so far. Porter obviously came to the UFC with the most modest of expectations. You know, he was a uh, 10 and four guy from Keith's neck of the woods that Keith just, you know, admitted quite frankly, he's just another regional guy uh, and had relatively uh, modest expectations when he got knocked out in the first round by uh, Chris Dawkins in his debut. It looked like the experiment was not long for the UFC, but he's strung together two decent wins since then. And, uh, you know, Josh Parisian and Chase Sherman, they're on the bottom tier of, of UFC heavyweights, but Porter's proven that he at least belongs there. Uh, and I don't know if he's gotten better. I don't know if, you know, these fights have allowed him to, you know, quit his day job and focus more on training. I don't think he's added any new wrinkles to his 
uh, style, but uh, if anything, he's probably a little better con conditioned now. Uh, he's used to being in there in the octagon. He's fighting a higher level of fighter. Uh, so he has definitely exceeded the expectations that I had for him when he arrived, uh, you know, almost two years ago. Uh, Alan Baudot, you know, you have this tall, black Frenchman, teammate of Surreal Gone. You know, he's another MMA factory guy, but he's he really should be a light heavyweight. He was a light heavyweight in most of his fights before the UFC, and even as an MMA factory guy and a surreal gone like primary training partner, he is not a sophisticated kickboxer. He's kind of a light heavyweight brawler, you know, with good power, at least good power by light heavyweight standards. And he's not shown a whole lot in the UFC. I mean, losing to Tom Aspinall is excusable. Tom Aspinall is very, very good. You and I both think, well, he, it's not even upside. He's a top 10 light heavyweight right now, but he, he probably has at least title picture upside. And he's probably there with another win or two. But getting knocked out by Rodrigo Nascimento, who's a grappler and not a great uh, heavyweight either, that was a bad look. Uh, there's a reason Parker Porter is a minus two and a half favorite here. And I'm going first, so I, I will steal the line. And yeah, maybe Parker Porter shouldn't be a two and a half to one favorite over anyone in the UFC, but Bodo maybe shouldn't be in the UFC. Uh, if he's serious about this, he probably needs to drop back down to light heavyweight because the things that Porter's going to do come forward, throw hard kicks at his legs, keep his hands up and wait for a chance to like throw one twos or just throw over hands. That's going to work against Alan Bodeau. He might just win a decision or he might catch him and knock him out. Cause Bodeau is a, he's not a lights out athlete. Like he has good power, but he's not blindingly fast. Again, he is not surreal gone. Uh, you know, like, Porter might just catch him and knock him out. Uh, in fact, that's what I'm picking. Give me Parker Porter by second round knockout. Yeah, Parker Porter. The, this guy's been grinding for a really long time. You mentioned that Bordeaux is a undersized heavyweight. That is not the case with Parker Porter. I mean, he's a massive heavyweight. I don't know if he cuts down to 265. Like, I don't think he has to. But he's one of the, he's one of these guys. Like, he better not pick out Friday night or he might miss weight. Like, he's that he's that guy. Like, he can't. You know, oh, I shouldn't say Friday, Thursday night. Yeah. Um, he's he's not very athletic, but he's super tough. He's he's your basic striker, just those basic combinations. Uh, he, heavy on his overhand right, has some power, has whopping leg kicks. I mean, I've said it over and over again. He's got the biggest legs you'll see. Um, he has tons of defensive flaws. He's he's kind of too slow to avoid strikes. He also try, doesn't really try to avoid strikes. He'll walk through punches. Uh, and he also makes a mistake. Uh, we've talked about other fighters, particularly Rob Whitaker, of trying to constantly even up the score when he gets tagged. If he gets tagged with a hard shot, he wants to answer with a hard shot. But he's a, kind of an underrated wrestler a little bit. He's Once he's on top, he's so big, it's hard to get off. Uh, he's taken down his last two opponents. He So... Um, <clears throat> his he is also a sub threat. He has three uh, submissions on his record. Now move over to Bodeau. Bodeau is a, I'd say he's kind of high output. He's he's a herky jerky. You mentioned he's a brawler. Uh, he uses a lot of feints, but he has like weird attacks, spinning attacks. Um, he hates pressure. He needs space to do some weird stuff. Uh, hard leg kicks. 
he's he's not a great wrestler, but he does have some judo in his in his back pocket, and he he likes to do some throws. But weak top control, um, weak takedown defense. He doesn't really sprawl. He looks more to switch. Uh, and as you mentioned, Tom Aspinall mounted him quickly when it hit the canvas. So, and then he got knocked out uh, in back to back fights, which obviously is very concerning. I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm taking Parker Porter to win his third straight fight in the UFC. Uh, I, I, you know, you were picking him to land a big shot on the feet. I actually think it's going to be opposite. I think he's going to take him down. I think he's going to take him down. I think he's going to land hard to grind and pound. I think he's going to get a finish. I'm going to say he gets a finish. Uh, I'll say, yeah, I'm going to say first round. I'll say first round TKO for Parker Porter. That brings us to the co-main event, a middleweight matchup between Jamie Pickett and Kyle Dawkus. This one made on fairly short notice as Dawkus was originally scheduled to fight Julian Marquez, and Marquez withdrew with, I believe, an injury. Uh, Pickett steps in on fairly short notice and fairly short turnaround. Pickett, 33-year-old North Carolinian, is 13-6 and six overall. He is 2-2 two and two in the UFC since joining as a veteran of the first, third, and fourth uh, seasons of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, after that third appearance on the Contender Series, he debuted in the UFC and promptly lost his first two fights against Stefan Nchukwi and Jordan Wright. He turned that around last October with a unanimous decision win over Lariano Staropoli, then fought in January, just, uh, what is it, three, four weeks ago, uh, won a unanimous decision over Joseph Holmes at UFC on ESPN Cater versus Chikadze. He makes the short notice turnaround here to take on Dawkus. Dawkus, the 28-year-old Philadelphia native, is 10-2 and two with one no contest overall. He is one and two with one no contest uh, since joining the UFC. He was a competitor on the third season of Dana White's Contender Series, was not immediately signed out of that uh, uh, after that fight, but made his way eventually. And again, one and two with one no contest. Uh, most recently was that no contest. It was a matchup with Kevin Holland at UFC Fight Night Santos versus Walker last October that ended midway through the first round after an accidental clash of heads. Uh, prior to that, he had lost a unanimous decision to Phil Hawes uh, last May. Odds, we don't have any as of right now. Uh, yep, there you go. Uh, however, Dawkins was around uh, almost two to one favorite over uh, Julian Marquez before Marquez dropped off the card. Considering Pickett is stepping up on short notice, I expect Dawkins will probably open as the favorite here once again even though, you know, uh, he hasn't won a fight since 2020. But it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, Keith, I mean, one, obviously you, you probably didn't get to the point of doing any tape study for it, but how differently do you feel about this fight than you would have about a fight against Marquez? And how do you think this one goes? Man, it's, I actually think the fight might be a little tougher than the original opponent. Now, again, we don't know what kind of shape pick it'll be in, but being that he just fought... He kind of seems like a guy that always is in shape. It actually thinks stylistically it might be a little tougher. Now, Doc is uh, a guy that I've liked. I liked him on the contender series. I still like him moving forward. Uh, he's a southpaw. He's very technically sound, composed striker. He tends to stalk his opponents behind a busy jab, very accurate left hand. I love that he doesn't rush his attacks, though. He just touches and then explodes when there is an opening. He keeps his hands low, and, and we talked about this. I can't remember which other fighter, but he does it differently. He keeps his ha hands low 
uh, as part of an offensive strategy, and he throws some weird angles that's kind of hard to see. He generates, I would say, plus power because he really sits on his punches. He has a nice long kick, understands range well, blasts the body on orthodox fighters. He's a good grappler. He has a submission threat. He's got eight submission wins in his career. He his specialties are kind of like head attacks, uh, going for guillotines, going for darts. Long uh, arm, long yeah, arm. Yeah, submissions. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, he will lose position to chase a sub, which I don't like. Uh, and the two other things I have against him is his get-up game. He'll play jujitsu instead of trying to get back up. A good example of that is against Brendan Allen. He lost that fight because he lost to grappling. And he's been rocked in a lot of fights because he's faced really good competition for guys, you know, still somewhat new to the UFC. Now, move on to Pickett. Last time we, we had Pickett breaking down his fights, we talked about how inconsistent he is. But to his credit, the good picket has shown up a lot lately. Uh, he's got back-to-back wins. He's really picked up his output recently. He hasn't been hurt in a really long time, uh, at, you know, over his last two fights. I'm still not sold that he, on his on his chin being that he got absolutely crushed by Jordan Wright. But he's well-rounded. He can fight out of both stance. His fast hands, I'd say, Plus power, he's not that you know knock you out one and done puncher, but he's you know, he's he can crack a little bit. He fights best when he's pressing forward instead of being the one pressing back. Not much of a kicking game. He doesn't really check leg kicks, but he's a really underrated grappler. I mean, he's very physically strong. He's bigger for the weight class. He get he's gotten two takedowns in back to back fights that uh, helps him win rounds. He's good chain wrestling attacks together. Good count and pound. He's not a submission threat, and he does need to improve ground control. Uh, and if you put him on his back, he struggles to get back up. But he's smart. He'll he'll win rounds with his grappling and oh, just stalling against the cage, just wearing on opponents with his size. He did that against Holmes a lot. Before his last fight, I would have picked Dawkins to before Pickett's last fight. I'm saying before Pickett's last fight, I would I would have picked Dawkins in an absolute blowout. Pickett, though, he seems to be turning the corner a little bit. I'm still going to take Dawkins. Uh, he's going to have to avoid uh, having Pickett take him down. Uh, he's going to have to use a lot of movement, circle the cage, and then when he has his moments of range, really put the output on on Pickett. And I think Dawkins is that good. I think he's just a step up from I, I feel like Dawkins is a guy that could be a top 15 guy, while Pickett's more going to be a mid-card guy. Uh, not a bottom guy, but like a, a good test for like someone who thinks they can be a top 15 guy. So I'm going to say um, Dawkins gets, gets the better of Pickett. And, you know, I'm going to say he finds a, a stoppage. I'm going to say he gets in the second round. Yeah, this uh, this is an interesting matchup, and it's a very different matchup for Dawkins than Julian Marquez would have been. Like, Marquez is almost the opposite of Pickett in in a, a lot of ways. You know, just uh, he's doing the most he can with you know like fewer physical tools. Uh, but I feel almost the same way about Dawkins. Like you mentioned, how technically sound is striking. His hands are really really nice, uh, and he's maximizing what he's got because a lot of it covers up the fact that his hands aren't. I mean, his hands aren't super fast and his feet are slow, um, but he just, you know, he's really well schooled and just kind of ends up, 
in in the right position to even make like you know his low hand style work really well. Uh, he definitely has all the tools. Like he's a good wrestler, good grappler. Even if, as you pointed out, he's a, a little too willing to you know lose rounds, like looking for submissions from his back or, or conceding that that uh, uh, those positions. You want to? I'm glad you used the term "the good Jamie Pickett" because I want to say that on the preview for his last fight, we just literally talked about, you know, whether the good Jamie Pickett or the bad Jamie Pickett shows up. I agree with you that Dawkins has a uh, higher upside. Like he's one and two with one no contest in the UFC, but it's just been against brutal opposition. I mean, his one win is over Dustin Stoltzfus, but the other three fights, like Brandon Allen, Phil Hawes, and Kevin Holland, are all guys like I mean Kevin Holland is a top ten fighter. Like how many guys that are one and two in the UFC get a, get a top ten fighter in like in their next fight? You know like that. Uh, you know Brendan Allen, you know is another prospect that I think of at, with roughly the same upside and and same with Phil Hall's. Like he's he's faced a murderer's row. I do think he has a higher upside than Pickett, but I just have a and this is going to be the least analytical thing ever. But I just have a funny feeling about Pickett in, in this fight. Like it hinges on the good Pickett showing up again, because the, the Pickett that, uh, that won his last fight that, uh, beat, uh, Joseph Holmes, it wasn't a, a pretty fight, but you know, he came back from losing the first round and won the last two in, uh, just by, you know, putting himself in, in the best possible, uh, positions against Holmes and it's depends on this being not too brutal a weight cut for him. But as you pointed out, he's a guy that he sure as hell looks like he's in shape all the time. I mean, he's like, he's like middleweight Phil Davis. He's just got this V taper, like, you know, like a cartoon character. Yeah, that's uh, a good call. So like I say, this is probably going to open up with like doc as being like, you know, minus minus one eighty or minus 200. But yeah, I've just got this, this funny feeling that, this is going to be a fight that we look back as kind of a high watermark of Pickett's career and maybe one of Dawkins's last quote unquote low level losses, but give me Pickett to step up on, on short notice and get it done against the more touted prospect uh, Pickett by decision. That brings us to the fight that was promoted from co-main event to main event just eight days out from fight night. It is the light heavyweight matchup between Johnny Walker and Jamal Hill. Walker, the 29-year-old Brazilian by way of Scotland, is uh, 18 and six overall. He is four and three since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series. He is coming off a loss. He dropped a unanimous decision to Tiago Santos in the main event of UFC Fight Night 193 last October. Prior to that, he knocked out Ryan Spann uh, in two minutes and 43 seconds at UFC Fight Night, Covington versus Woodley in September of 2020. That was a wild back and forth fight that uh, Walker ended up just being the last man standing. Uh, prior to that, he had lost two straight against Corey Anderson and Nikita Krylov. He'll be taking on Hill. The 30-year-old Grand Rapids, Michigan native is nine and one with one no contest overall. He is three and one with one no contest since joining the UFC out of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series, and he is coming off a win in his last outing. He fought at UFC on ESPN's Fought versus Aldo last December, knocked out Jimmy Crute in just 48 seconds, 
that allowed him to bounce back from his first career loss, which was a gruesome elbow snapping TKO loss to Paul Craig at UFC 263. If you remember that one, that is one where they went to the ground pretty quickly. Uh, Craig put him, uh, slapped an armbar on him. Clearly something broke or tore, but uh, miserable ref Al Guinea didn't seem to see it. So we were treated to about 40 unnecessary seconds of Craig just pounding on uh, Hill before he finally stopped it via TKO. Bad look for uh, Guinea. Uh, nice comeback for Hill, uh, you know, after that fight. Hill is a substantial favorite here to get it done. He is minus 250. Walker is plus 200. Uh, Keith, you know, you haven't told me who you're, whom you're picking in this fight, but I think I can guess because you, you said uh, something, you know, earlier on, I think right off the top that kind of clued me in where you're like, you know, the 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 Johnny Walker, the, the show is over, the experiment's over, the joke is over. Like, I, I don't remember exactly what you said, but he's been exposed. Like we figured out now, cause you know, Walker came into the UFC uh, and he won his first three fights in via first round knockout, all three of them in under two minutes, two of them in under one minute. And, you know, Khalil Roundtree and Misha Serkinov were pretty good UFC light heavyweights. And he just completely blasted them. And it was with this wild, all spinning stuff all the time attack that, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, light heavyweight Michelle Pereira, like a light heavyweight Michelle Pereira and was poised for stardom. Obviously it shouldn't matter, but it matters. He's got an easy to pronounce name and just this wild personality. He cuts a figure visually. He is the largest light heavyweight in the history of the sport you know, six foot five and not skinny. I mean, he he just looks like he weighs 240 pounds in the cage with his like little curly mohawk, all poised for stardom. And then he ran into actual top 10 yeah. uh, light heavyweights and it all came crashing down. Corey Anderson exposed yeah. that if you don't let yourself be distracted by all the madness, you can catch this guy in the feet. And, you know, his defense was porous. Nikita Krylov, prove that if you tuck your chin you can take this guy down and you can keep him down and since then you know tiago santos just kind of outstruck him to a ho-hum victory he beat ryan span but he could have been knocked out by ryan span 15 seconds before that it was a wild round he was the last man standing which is great for bonuses it's not great if you're trying to string together yeah. enough wins to yeah. enter the top 10 so johnny There's walker is what he is in that one too if you remember with like yeah, that oh yeah, that, of, uh, that's as mad as I've ever punches. seen Safe Saud. Yeah, yeah, thirty punches in the back of the head. Like yeah, that that's as bad as I've ever seen Safe Saud of Fortis MMA, and yeah. I think he had a point there. There were a lot of strikes to the back yeah. of the head, and Span went from hurt to rocked to done. Yeah, because of those, like they they were fight changing illegal blows. Yeah. but we're talking about a guy who separated his own shoulder doing the worm after a fight. Like he's just. He's danger to himself and to everyone else. A lot of fun, but again, the top 10 upside hasn't been shown to be there. It's not like Pereira, who has kind of attenuated the madness and has just turned into an exciting kickboxer who's, who can actually beat top 10 fighters. Like, there's no sign of that coming from Johnny Walker yet. 
Meanwhile, Jamal Hill, I still think he's got all the upside in the world. And there are flaws in his game, and there are obvious paths to to beat him right now. But I don't see Walker taking advantage of any of them. What Jamal Hill is right now is he's a tall, lanky, rangy kickboxer with, like, he's got that surprising skinny man power. Like, it doesn't look like he's throwing hard. He doesn't look like a huge jacked guy. I mean, he's going to look a full weight class smaller than Walker, even though he's like a six foot four guy, you know, with like probably a 76 inch wingspan. But you can tell that everything he throws hurts and he has lamped some people with, Mm -hmm. you know, with like single strikes. Like, Open St. Prue and Jimmy Crute both, like, it it says KO punches, but the first one that landed, like, the ball was already rolling downhill. But a lot of, I mean, a lot of rangy, tall kickboxers don't like being put on the back foot and don't do well that way. Some of them get over it. Some never do. We don't know yet. Like, most guys that tall and that leggy that like to kick are susceptible to the takedown. He can be taken down. Like Paul Craig dragged him to the ground and broke his arm in like 90 seconds. Those are things that Johnny Walker is not going to do. I mean, it's not a tie to Ivasa weekend, but if Johnny Walker comes out and like shoots a sweet double leg on Hill and starts, you know, trying to advance to mount, I will do a shoey on the post fight show. You know, and while Walker, Walker definitely comes forward, but, you know, he comes forward like a spinning top. He doesn't come forward in a way that like, pressures his opponents yeah. you know in like a footwork sense he's not he's not using footwork and feints to like get you in a reactive mode and get you moving backwards he's just coming forward throwing like spinning stuff and Corey anderson showed well you know if, if you figure it out you can hit him while he's doing that i think that's what's more likely here uh it'll probably be a real entertaining fight for as long as it goes but i think the like Hill might be like a little hesitant in the beginning when the madness starts, but I think he's going to figure it out quickly because for a guy with a relatively short MMA record, he's already pretty poised on the feet. Like he doesn't like being put on the back foot, but he doesn't panic. Like it's not like all the wheels fall off his wagon. I think he's going to start piecing Walker up early. And I mean, if Walker plays against form and maybe starts just trying to clinch and make Hill wear his weight and start bringing in the phone booth, we might get a long fight, but I still favor Hill in that. But if Walker just comes out and does the Walker thing, I, I think he's going to knock him out, and I think he's going to do it pretty quickly. Give me Hill by a knockout, probably late in the first round. Yeah, wow. So you said that you'd do a shoey. If Johnny Walker pulls up some crazy submission, you got to hit a shot at Johnny Walker. That's what you got to do. I'll pour a shoe full of Johnny Walker, and that'll be the end of the post-fight show. I'll just fall out. (laughs) We'll have a lot of fun. We'll have a a lot of fun. Uh, Ben might be out of a job, but other than that. um, Yeah, so, yeah, Johnny Walker. So I've always felt with Johnny Walker when he was rise in the UFC, it was going to be really, really fun until it wasn't going to last any longer. Yeah, How many fights was that going to be? I don't know, but. Obviously, I feel at this point that's the case. Like, is he still dangerous? Of course. He's he's a great athlete. He's extremely explosive. He's got huge power, but he's a wild man. And and that there is a ceiling to that. And top five in the division isn't that ceiling. Uh, what I does that mean I'm ever gonna not watch Johnny Walker fight? Of course not. I mean, I love that he does these crazy attacks. You never know what's gonna happen. Uh, I love the spinning attacks. I love the flying knees. 
but there's a lot of major concern. The biggest concern is his chin. He's been cracked. I mean, Corey Anderson put him out. I would say that knockout is aged a lot better based on what Corey Anderson is doing than it did at that time. And obviously, Corey Anderson was considered a top five guy, but he wasn't known for his punching power. Uh, Ryan Spann, as you mentioned, hurt him multiple times and almost knocked him out. And then Tiago Santos uh, hurt him a little bit. It was a little bit of ho-hum, but yeah, he landed some shots. Um, so those are obviously concerning. Uh, his grappling is is a little concerning. Now, he 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 stops takedowns very similar to the Travis Brown elbows. Uh, sure, it, when he gets to land like 10 hammer fists in the back of Ryan Spann's head, that helps too, but uh, if he's on top, he's he's got these big arms. You talked about him just being so big. He's long. His arms are long, so he will, he'll land. Like, you could wrap a guard on him. He can still land on your chin uh, with some really mean ground pound. But his his takedown defense is really weak, and we saw that uh, in previous fights. And then his gas tank is an issue. We saw that in Nikita Krylov fight. Now, the argument is, well, he went 25 minutes against Tiago Santos, but that was a much slowed-down pace for both fighters. I think both fighters were a little gun-shy based on each other's power. I mean, Tiago Santos, we remember, especially in his prime, I don't know if we're still in his prime, but I mean, he was one of the scariest knockout guys of all time. And then, obviously, Johnny Walker. And I think because you know Johnny Walker's never fought a 25-minute fight in the UFC, he had to slow down the pace, make sure he could make it all the way through. I got, let me throw in real quick. It's kind of funny that you mentioned the Krylov fight because a couple years before that, Krylov was the guy who was wild and entertaining. That's right. Too wild and had a terrible gas tank. Yeah. Yeah. Now he gets out, he gets out grappled and out worn out by a guy like that. It's, it's kind of yeah. ironic. Uh, Hill, Hill's a Southpaw. You mentioned long and lengthy fighter. He's really sharp offensive striker. Very accurate. You mentioned that skinny man knockout power. Kind of like when like James Vicks only had like this knockout. No, there's a lot. Sure. That, that statement doesn't age too well. But there was a time where James Vick had like this knockout power. Uh, he works behind a stiff jab. He's straight right down the pipe is very accurate. I like that he goes to the body. Uh, long range. Keep kicks. Step in knees. I love. A lot of kicks to the body. Some ser- He has some serious defensive holes, though. He keeps his chin high in the air. He gives his head on the center line. Uh, he has been rocked in the past with pulling his head straight back, but uh, he didn't lose. He, I love that he initiates the clinch when his opponent crashes the pocket. So he wants you want to get in this range? Okay, I'm going to put you on the defense with this clinch, throwing up my knees. He will look for a takedown, though. He, like, he's not extremely one-dimensional. He, I actually don't think he gets enough credit for his grappling, though he – in fitness, he isn't much of a wrestler, and his takedown defense is bad. I mean, you go back to the Stoicic fight where he got taken down six times in the matchup. But to his credit, he kept working, and he had he showed he was hard to hold down. He threw up some mission taps off his back uh, using those long legs. And he, he hasn't shown any gas tank issues so far in the UFC, but obviously uh, you said this is a 25-minute fight now, and it's a 25-minute fight on a week's notice. So as prediction goes, he, despite going 25 minutes in the past with Johnny Walker, I actually think the adding two rounds might actually favor Hill, who hasn't gone 25, but he's not known for gassing either. I We're in agreement on this one. Uh, I really think this is a passing of the torch moment. Walker, Walker's going to have the not the punching power advantage, but just the raw craziness. Haymaker is something happening, unpredictability power. And he's obviously going to have just the unpredictable. If there's a 
you know, spinning back fist knockout. It, it'll, it'll be Walker Lennon's shot. However, Hill is just so much sharper. Uh, as you mentioned, you talked about Corey Anderson just staying composed in the wildness and just picking picking apart shots from distance. That's what I see Hill doing. I think Walker runs – if he fights – it is – as crazy as it says, we talk about all the negatives, all this craziness. I think that's really the only f- way he could fight Hill because if he fights him like he did Tiago Santos and he fights a slower outside kickboxing matchup, he's going to lose easily. Like he's going to have to try the craziness over power. But I think he's, I think he's gonna and he's going to run into a big shot. And I think Hill's going to put him out. And I'm also taking Hill by first round, late first round knockout. All right. So I got to ask you like one more, like completely off topic question. Well, it's not completely off topic, but you know, this discussion made me think about it. So Corey Anderson, if he beats Vadim Nemkov, uh, I think it's next month to win the Bellator heavyweight, uh, light heavyweight title. He'll be the Bellator light heavyweight champ. He will be one and O against the UFC light heavyweight champ and one and one against the previous UFC light heavyweight champ. Is Corey Anderson the best light heavyweight in the world? If he wins that fight against Nemkov, depends. Depends how he wins. If he wins in a spectacular fashion, like he like he's did to, pre, you know, so far his run into the mm-hmm. the Grand Prix, yeah, yes. Like if he lamps him or just like pitches a no hitter, where yeah, basically yeah. just he, like yeah, wipes him for five rounds, yeah. yeah. He drops a twenty five. He drops a dominant twenty five. You know, he's beating him up on the feet, gets some takedowns. He is, or if he just lamps him in the first round. Some big shot. Yeah, I think he is. But his now let me flip that question. What if Nemkov does it to him? A little look behind the curtain. And if you're watching this right now, then <laughs> yeah. you're probably used to this kind of thing from us. But a little look behind the curtain. Like, you know, the the rankings, the Sherdog rankings, you know, they're a, they're a debate every week. There are, you know, 10 or 12 people who are part of the discussion. But Keith and I are two of the more active ones. Yeah. I'm looking for an excuse to move Vadim Nemkov up further up the rankings because I think on skill, he is probably one of the th- the three best light heavyweights in the world right now. He just needs like some wins that can justify that. Corey Anderson is it. I I might move for like Nemkov at number one if he beats Corey Anderson. Yeah. So I would. So there's probably like you said there's probably twelve of us on it, but there's really about six or seven guys who are really active. Yeah. You, me, uh, Jay Petri, Mike Fridley is. The yeah. guy who leads Tristan, Tristan Critchfield, who Tristan, writes them. Yeah. Yeah. A couple other guys. Are, we might yeah. be forgetting, but um, I would say I'm much more. Oh, Lev is another one who's pretty active. Yeah. Me and Lev are two of the much more pro Bellator fighters. We're mm-hmm. more, we'd be more in the camp that would push Bellator fighters higher than most people would. Yeah. Um, it, I would be hard to put Nemkov number one. Yeah, I'm not saying he isn't. I'm not saying the argument isn't there, but it's uh, based that he doesn't have a win over Glove to share like Corey Anderson does. So right. if Corey wins, I could, see, I really could see him getting number one spot. I'd be very surprised if Nemkov gets number one spot. But <laughs> I might be arguing with it. I mean, he he's at least in that top three at at, at that point. <laughs> So that's how we close our, our yeah. preview show by previewing a Bellator <laughs> for later this month. That's what the UFC gets for letting the man go. Like, anyway, um, that's it. That's the 
pretty short preview for a pretty short UFC card. Uh, UFC Vegas 48, UFC Fight Night 201, uh, Walker versus Hill. Uh, thank you for watching. As always, we'll be doing the recap uh, right after the main. Oh, no. Just for the record, I will not be doing the recap. I'm expected to be a Mohegan Sun covering Bellator. Hey, there you go. Which card is it? It's the uh, Neiman Gracie Logan Storley card. Ooh, that's a fun one. We'll have to. Uh, not that fun. It's not that fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that fight is fun. <laughs> yeah. Like I like that fight. Uh, okay, so I'll e I'll be on the recap either flying solo where you know if you've been to any of those I usually just talk back and forth directly with you through the live chat on YouTube or I might rope. Uh, you know, somebody else into joining me, but, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes after the main event, we'll be live on the sure dog YouTube page. Keith will be, uh, at the Mohegan sun in the fight sphere watching, uh, Logan Storley win a unanimous decision over Neiman Gracie. Wow. There you go. Get a, get a uh, bonus bonus breakdown for you. That's a, real, real X's and O's there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what? I want to go the opposite. I'm going to say, uh, I'll be watching Neiman Gracie submit Logan Storley. Man, the the way he waited out Ed Ruth, let him get tired, and then just took over, I could see him doing that to Storley. Like, Storley got so tired trying to wrestle down Amosov. I'm feeling, yeah. feeling weird about my pick now. We better sign off soon. <laughs> I'm Ben Duffy. He's Keith Schillen. Enjoy your week. Enjoy the fights. And as always, thank you for listening.